Welcome to the Technoskeptic Podcast. I'm Art Keller. Our guest today is Cal Newport, a professor of computer science at Georgetown and author of the book Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. Professor Newport, thanks for taking the time out of your laser-focused schedule to discuss some of the insights in Deep Work. Oh, well, thanks for uh, having me on, Art. What is the difference between deep and shallow work? Well, starting with definitions, uh, deep work is my term for activities you do in a state of unbroken, undistracted concentration. So deep work is when you're locked into something, cognitively speaking, something cognitively demanding, giving it your full mental effort without even a quick glance at an inbox or a quick look at a website. So it's a completely locked in stage. And then shallow work, I define just as the antonym of deep work. So if it's not deep work, we can consider it shallow work. There's a lot of reasons why I ended up writing this book, but I I think one of the most motivating is this underlying idea I uncovered, which really caught my attention, which is if you step back and study our economy, especially the knowledge economy, it becomes clear that deep work is becoming increasingly valuable. And yet we're seeing due to various sort of technological and workplace culture trends is actually becoming more rare. That makes a lot of sense. Explain what happens to those who are mired in a career that's mostly shallow work and don't realize it. What are their economic prospects going down the road? Well, the problem, if you're if you're mainly doing shallow work, you're missing out on, on two of the biggest benefits of deep work. One is what you need to do deep work in order to master complicated new skills and to do so quickly. And you need deep work to actually perform at an elite level, to do cognitively demanding tasks, to produce things that are hard to replicate, high value things. Both of those depend on deep work. So if you're mired in shallow work, if you're predominantly on Slack and email and meetings and bouncing information around like a human network router, you're not doing the type of work that's going to remain indispensable in an age of increasing sort of automation and outsourcing elimination. If all you do all day is move emails around, keep in mind that's something that computers are very good at. (laughs) And as AI gets better and better, you will be less and less vital in the digital economy. So deep work is not just about this huge opportunity for you to get a sort of big advantage in the marketplace. I also think it's essentially uh, robot insurance. I think robot insurance or AI insurance is probably a great tagline to explain to people the value of this because I know that anyone who's even the least bit aware of things and has been looking at the manufacturing economy is looking over their shoulder, and rightly so. And so you identify the winners in this coming economy, which is here now and is only going to accelerate, is people who work well with intelligent machines, a superstar of any field, whether it be medicine or entertainment or whatever, and then owners of capital. And I think that's a a fair analysis and all the facts support it, but it does make me wonder what it says for the economic prospects of huge swaths of the country that already feel like roadkill in a high-tech economy. Well, I I think we're making things worse for ourselves by not thinking seriously about what are the most effective work cultures for the knowledge economy in general. I mean, part of what's happening is we had these innovations in front office IT. Everyone should have a computer on their desk. All these computers should be connected. We should make uh, getting information and communication as simple as possible. And that seemed to make sense, except for when we looked at the economic productivity numbers, we didn't get the major boost we thought. We didn't get the same sustained boom in productivity that we got with the back office. 
And the big problem was is in the front office, we have human brains and taking a human brain, which is a complicated biological entity shaped over millions of years evolution and hooking it up to an email network, they don't always interface well. So what we're doing is we're, we're sort of managing ourselves into irrelevancy by mismanaging how we use human brains and knowledge work and trying to trying to make them more like the computers, trying to turn us into human network routers, doing this sort of constant communication is we're making people much more easy to be replaced. We're not developing the type of deeply cognitive and human skills that are going to be more valuable, more difficult to replace. And so I think our, our knowledge work industry in general is inadvertently sort of sowing the seeds of its own growing irrelevancy. One of the things I've read is you must be able to master hard things again and again and again. And the way not only our work environment, but also our general educational system is set up doesn't seem to be geared to that. I think that's absolutely what's happening. We have this general belief that if you make information more accessible and communication more frictionless, just naturally, things would get more productive. But it, it didn't end up working. It really did not end up working. It's not we're not getting the sustained boost that we should have seen, especially in the early 2000s and so on during the, the mobile revolution, uh, the laptop revolution, the building a digital Internet wireless infrastructure across the entire country so that anyone can access information and anyone else from any place with <laughs> with a supercomputer capable machine in their pocket. I mean, these innovations should have made us an economic superpower and productivity was stagnant. That what's left out of that equation is how does the human brain work? What does the human brain need to do to actually produce value? Yeah, I have personally experienced that, particularly in the 2000 timeframe. At the time, I was working for a, a large government agency, one of those three-letter ones that's mostly focused on national security. And my boss kept on demanding, get on instant messenger because she wanted me to answer basically very routine questions at a moment's notice. And I would say yes and nod my head and basically passively aggressively not do it because I knew if I was on instant messenger dealing with five little message bubbles at the same time, I would never get my important work done. And that work was evaluating the truth of statements about various kinds of weapons of mass destruction. So, you know, fairly detailed and important work. And if you screw it up because you're distracted, no one wins in that. So towards the end of the book, you give strategies of how to kind of pare down other people's availability to you to enhance your ability to do deep work. And I, I wish I had read that at the time so I could take it to the boss and explain, look, if you want me to be constantly available, the other more important stuff that you want me to do is just not going to get done. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the key is in today's world trading clarity for accessibility. It turns out that in, in a lot of instances, you can dial back your accessibility if you exchange extreme clarity for that accessibility. So if it's just you can't reach me or you don't know when you can reach me, that's going to be problematic. And it, the boss is going to say, would be better off if I just could always reach you because I can't have this uncertainty. But on the other hand, if there's clarity, this is when we talk and this is when you can reach me and this is when you can't reach me. And they know exactly that's also okay. And so that's definitely one of the shifts that I've seen successful organizations start to make is if you want to get away from constant accessibility, you have to put in a structure of clarity instead. We just default back to just everyone plug into this hyperactive hive mind and let's just chat all day long. But it just doesn't work at scale and it just doesn't work for demanding cognitive work. 
I have run across things that explained uh, what you're talking about in light of the term brainstorming. And they found, and it came from the advertising industry, and they thought, okay, eight people in a room throwing out ideas, this is going to be wonderfully creative, except when they compared it to the output of people on their own who then later presented it to the group. The individual production was always way better. So it is counterintuitive. We want to treat groups like their neural networks constantly exchanging messages. And that's just not the way it quite works. Yeah. All the information in the world is not going to help you if you don't actually have time to do something with it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So one of the things you write is that Americans have embraced the myth of natural talent rather than deliberate practice. So why is that pernicious and something that needs to be rooted out in order to facilitate more deep work? And how do we go about doing that? If you don't understand sort of the reality of how people get better at hard things, then it's going to be very unlikely that you get better at hard things. So we now have decades of work from mainly psychology, performance psychology, that tells us if you want to get good at a demanding task, whether it's physical or mental, you have to practice it in a deliberate way. That is, you have to do exercises that stretch you past where you're comfortable. Most people, especially in the knowledge work context, essentially never do this, right? Because we're, we're not comfortable with the sort of sustained discomfort and, con- and concentration required to sort of try to master a new skill or whatever. We've been trained that, that we should have sort of distraction or something interesting presented to us at the slightest hint of boredom. And so we have an increasing difficulty now actually doing the type of hard concentrated work required to learn hard things and to get better at things. It's going to take that same sort of hard concentration you had to do when you were learning piano as a kid We're like, okay, if I want to learn this new song, I'm going to have to really concentrate on trying to play it and not make mistakes. And after a while, it'll get easier. If you don't recognize that sort of deliberate practice is necessary, it's not going to happen naturally. It's a very artificial type of thing that requires quite a lot of intention behind it. A lot of our society is literally distracting by design, whether in personal life or in professional life. And people are sold a bill of goods thinking the way to success is the ability to multitask. But... You know, every bit of research I see on multitasking is that it's a myth. I mean, the terminology I I like to use is it's almost like there's been a shift. So multitasking was what we thought in the like late 90s would work. And that's literally doing multiple things at the same time. But what people do today is they're almost single tasking. So they're working on one thing at a time, but they're populating this work with these quick checks every five to 10 minutes. So I'm mainly trying to write this article, but I do a quick check on my phone. Just writing this article, but let me do a quick check on my email inbox. And I'm writing this, but let me just do a quick check on Twitter. But attention residue is a very easy replicatable effect in the laboratory and in your own life, which basically is the following. If you're focused on something hard and then you switch your attention to something else, when you switch your attention back to the original target, your cognitive capacity is reduced for a non-trivial amount of time. So the thing you switch your attention to leaves a residue on your attention that pulls at your attention and reduces your essentially your cognitive firepower for a while until that residue clears out. Because what happens is, is every time you do a quick check, you induce some residue, which brings down your cognitive performance. And most knowledge workers will do these quick checks so frequently that they never give that a time to clear out. So that they're working under a sort of self-imposed, persistent state of reduced cognitive capacity and don't even realize that's going on. I have personally felt this. And even while I was reading this book, taking notes, you know, planning questions, I noticed a kind of, for want of a better word, a constant 
pressure to do other distracting things. And that pressure doesn't go away until I've been at the task for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then my mind kind of settles down and I can get to the work. But I can completely see how if you're constantly doing quick checks, then you're having to fight. You're having to fight past that that distraction, that yammering that your mind is constantly doing. And it is the opposite of deep work. And that's why my definition of deep work says zero quick checks, right? I'm really clear in my definition that a period does not count as deep work if you do any glances at anything else because the quality and quantity of what you can produce with no attention residue just dwarfs what you can produce with even a little bit of attention residue. So I'm really stringent on that point. If you want to master deep work, what you're mastering is intense concentration with zero distraction. And speaking of distraction, now we get to a favorite pet peeve of mine. What is the harm of the open office plan? Well, the, the issue with open office is that it, it took a good idea and then just tried to universalize it in a way that to me is, is absurd. So it, it took this idea that, hey, it's it's good for different people from different positions to run into each other and meet each other and be around each other because that could spark some interesting ideas or creativity, but then they took that good idea and just built the entire company around. So then let's have people constantly be surrounded by other people with the idea that somehow that would make it much better. And the way I like to think about it is that Edison had the formula about right, which was genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. The 1% inspiration is, Hey, I ran into someone else from this other department and we had a big idea. The 99% perspiration is the deep work of actually acting on that idea and producing and extracting real value from it. And open offices just get it backwards. Well, along those same lines, there's another issue with a, a good idea kind of gone wrong. If the work you're doing is high tech, be it social media or answering emails, it is good without examining its utility in terms of how much deep work does this produce. What is going on with our society valuing technology just for technology? We do get a lot of that now where just the, the sort of patina of high tech induces value for people. So, well, this is the newest tool or I'm using high tech things and therefore whatever I'm doing must in some sense be valuable. It must be on the cutting edge. But the reality is, and I, and I talk about this from the point of view of a, a professional technologist, even in the world of high tech, the real value production is being done by intense concentration and deep work that in other words no one ever made a fortune out of being or changed the world out of being really good at using facebook but people did make a fortune and change the world out of being able to do the intense deep work required to actually build the giant distributed system that can run a network like facebook uh, there is this interesting thing going on where you kind of have the masses thinking well if i'm doing stuff with tech tools then i'm cutting edge and the actual people pushing the cutting edge are some of the most focused and concentrated people around. Being able to watch TV doesn't tell me anything about your ability to do media production. The program continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic podcast. If you like what you hear, please share or subscribe at technoskeptic.substack.com. We've got a lot of great content looking at the impact of technology on society. We cover a wide range of issues like privacy, economics, cognition, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and a whole lot more. If you have comments or want to contribute an article to the Technoskeptic, email us at technoskeptic at substack.com. And now, back to the show. Right now, we're just 
talking more about the economics, but you also describe deep work as not just economically rewarding, but meaningful. And this is whether we're talking about a blacksmith forging a sword or an academic publishing a new paper. And so this relates a lot to some work done by a psychologist whose name is almost unpronounceable. I'll give it a shot. Everyone knows the book. It's called Flow. I think his name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He promotes the idea of a creative flow state. It's almost a Buddhist no-mind state where you're completely engrossed in your activity. What is the value of getting into that state from a satisfaction perspective, from a from a perspective of meaning? Right. Well, flow state, uh, you know, as Mihaly, well, I won't say it right either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He found from his research that it's highly associated with well-being, right? So w- when people get lost in this state of flow, it's a I want to say pleasurable, but satisfying and meaningful uh, experience. And so it's one of the reasons why spending more time focused on deep work just makes your life better, separate from economic indicators. And so this is one big reason is that flow is something that requires, it's a state of deep work, right? So if you're doing deep work, you are increasing the chance that you're going to fall into a flow state and people find that to be uh, very meaningful and very satisfying. Now, not all deep work is going to induce a flow state. I mean, if you're doing deliberate practice on something complicated, you're not going to enter a flow state. You're not going to lose track of time. You're probably going to count every last damn minute while you're trying to do this hard thing. But but even in those situations, deep work remains satisfying. This is one of the, the big results that came up in my research. For many different reasons, and as identified from many different disciplines, from the philosophical to the scientific, human beings seem to be wired for concentration. The more that we're sort of focused in a present and mindful way on something hard or meaningful, the more we do that, the more satisfied we seem to be. So, you know, a deep life is not just economically successful. A deep life tends to be a much more satisfying life than what most people are doing. Humans get very anxious and uncomfortable about having rapidly changing and fragmented attention. Our brains were not evolved for that. It was not evolved for social media feeds and email inboxes. And so the more we're doing shallow, quick stuff, the more anxious we become. The more we're doing deep stuff, the more satisfied we feel. You mentioned focusing attention and describe it basically as as a process of building up mental muscles that help you focus that. And, And it gets a little bit easier with time and you can definitely stretch out the time in which you can do it. And we know the work benefits, but you also explain that there are kind of cognitive mood benefits of learning to focus your attention on certain things and not focus attention on other things. And one of the examples you gave was how a woman who was good at focusing her attention on the right things in her environment and reality was really enjoying her life even when going through an existential ordeal like getting treated for cancer. Yeah, well, this example was the science journalist Winifred Gallagher, who who did have this experience where she was going through cancer treatment. And she had this this experience where by being very intentional about what she paid attention to, somehow the, the whole experience was not as horrible as she thought it was. So then she went and wrote this whole book called Wrapped, trying to understand the mechanism behind this. And basically what she found is this idea that's been around for a long time is that your world is essentially what you pay attention to. So by paying attention to sort of more positive or productive or meaningful things and not paying attention to these other things, her world literally got better. And her experience was better because of that. And so I borrowed that idea to help understand why deep work 
is often so satisfying for people. And that's because when you're state of deep work, by focusing on one thing that you chose, you're constructing a world that's sort of focused on a meaningful, productive things. And you're keeping your attention away from other things that might be more negative and make your world seem more negative. So if you're just in social media and inside of your inbox, you're going to be exposed to lots of stressful or negative things. And so your mind will construct an understanding of your world that's stressful and negative. If you're instead focused on, I'm trying to write this beautiful piece of music or what have you, then your actual world will seem better. Which brings us to kind of one of the central challenges. So let me just quote, people fight desires to do other stuff all day long, including eating, sleeping, and sex. Also including taking a break from hard work, surfing the web, listening to music, watching TV. So when we're kind of moving into the field of fractured attention, uh, there's another book out there that I don't know if you have children, but if you do, it's terrifying. It's called American Girls. And it's Nancy Joe Sales interviews almost 200 girls aged 13 to 18 about their relationship to smartphones and social media. And it is darn near pathological. All the language of addiction is there and everything necessary for deep work. They seem to be being trained out of developing those skills to avoid things like that, to avoid fractured attention. You outline uh, different strategies for like setting up blocks of time in your daily schedule where you can make a run at deep work. What's some of the easiest steps to take to put their feet on the path towards deep work? The big observation here is that you know deep work is difficult. And if you don't have a philosophy for how you schedule deep work, it's not going to happen. It can't just be, hey, do I have a lot of free time? Do I feel like doing deep work right now? Oh, I do. Maybe I'll do some. You'll never do any deep work. And so almost everyone who's successful with a deep work habit that I've interviewed has some sort of philosophy. I talk about a variety of different philosophies people use for scheduling deep work just to emphasize there's no one right answer. So the the big picture recommendation for someone who's new in the deep work is get very concrete about when you're going to do this work. You have to have a philosophy that you can fall back on and get away from just willpower and hoping like you feel in the mood to do these type of efforts. Some of the things that I noticed, what you've incorporated to get people to move towards deep work are kind of rituals and fairly strict scheduling practices. Have some exercise thrown in there. In many cases, you discuss using a walk as a chance to to do a bit of deep work, a productive meditation. So what this really reminded me of was something, there's a, a bit of research out there that really enforces that. And it's by a guy called Dr. John Rady, and it's called Spark. And it's about all the different ways exercise benefits. And specifically, when it comes to cognitive tasks, exercise relates brain-derived neurotropic factor, which they describe as miracle growth for your brain. It literally is a hormone that squeezes out and it makes it easier to find and build connections. I've read Spark and I think there's definitely a strong anthropological case for it just by studying historically people who are really good at deep work. As you said, there's almost always this massive commitment to movement and exercise in their lives. Great thinkers are almost always great walkers. And I think that's probably no coincidence. I would say that. And even when you're doing specific tasks, I'm finishing up my second novel and I find invariably when I need to get through a a plot point or a, a stick, the best place to do that is throw on some shoes and go for a walk. 
But taking it to a, a bit of a, a different angle, uh, exercise is great for deep work, but the structure of the deep work is really important as well. Now you want people to narrow their focus down to a few very deep goals, which you can then use specific measures to track. So why few and why that particular way to measure productivity? Well, so having a few goals is important, especially when you're you're trying to apply deep work because concentration can be wasted if it's diffused. And so just entering a state of intense concentration is not necessarily going to produce value if that concentration is not focused very specifically and persistently towards a small number of things. So lending the value to a crew and allowing that concentration to be focused on a particular goal, you get a lot more out of it. Now, the idea of a, a lead measure is that I recommend that people start thinking about the amount of deep work they do as one of the most important lead measures for accomplishing the important goals in their professional life. So a lead measure is something that you can measure directly as you do it, as opposed to a lag measure, which is usually like an outcome. And so those two things I do recommend to people. Apply your deep work time towards a small number of concrete goals and keep track of how much deep work you're doing. Make that a, a compelling scoreboard that drives you to keep down that path. One of my favorite lead measures you described, possibly because I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy, but also because he's been prodigiously creative and not coincidentally is now fantastically rich, is the Jerry Seinfeld measure. Explain a little bit about that one and calendars, because that is one I am determined I'm going to implement because I'm also a writer and it just makes perfect sense. And it's incredibly simple. Yeah, his method was essentially X out each day on the calendar that you actually work deeply on the thing that's important to you. For him, that meant working on his jokes, right? But it could be whatever. And he says it's visual. You see these X's. He calls it a chain. You see this chain of X's growing on your calendar, and you don't want to break the chain. The very visual nature, it makes perfect sense to me. I will do this because productivity as a writer, your work quality will vary widely from day to day, but you're not going to have any work to rewrite and improve and fix if you just don't have the habit. And so part of that is making sure you're really good in scheduling and defending your time to do deep work. But another thing you touched on is the importance of downtime. But, and this is very important, you point out that not all downtime is created equal. Yeah, this is something that people often overlook, which is what you do with your attention outside of work has impacts the next day or the next week when you actually get back to work, that your brain and its ability to focus is like a general muscle. So even if you're very focused, let's say during the workday, if you spend all of your leisure time on your phone, just looking for quick hits of distraction, jumping back and forth between the web and social media and news feeds and on a tablet and your phone while watching Netflix, that is actually potentially going to be weakening your brain's comfort with concentration, going to be reducing your brain's general ability to focus. And you're going to feel that when it comes time at the office to actually concentrate. I think the right analogy is physical health. If you're an athlete, even if you train very hard during your training sessions, if you're eating junk food and smoking in the evening outside of your training sessions, it's still going to hurt your performance on the field. You also talk along those lines about rather than jumping on a phone, on a smartphone, there's a value in embracing boredom. So what do you mean by embracing boredom? Well, this goes back to cognitive fitness. So if your brain has been taught that at the slightest hint of boredom, it gets a shiny treat, it gets a quick hit of stimuli on your phone, it's going to build up a Pavlovian connection where it assumes boredom means distraction. 
if you build up that connection, when it comes time to actually concentrate on something important and do deep work, your brain's not going to tolerate it going to rebel and it's not going to cooperate. It's not going to allow you to, to concentrate intensely. And so what you have to do is break this Pavlovian connection between boredom and stimuli, boredom and stimuli. And the best way to do it is just practice being bored. You don't have to be bored all the time, but on a regular basis, you should give yourself the experience of being bored, wanting some novel stimuli and denying yourself that. So would you recommend when you have a bored state and you're in a bank, you look at the line, you know, it's going to be 15 minutes. Just be bored. Yeah, when in line in the bank, just embrace boredom because your goal here is not to produce something productive. It's all about just breaking the Pavlovian connection between boredom and stimuli. So it's just giving yourself practice with this idea of sometimes you're just bored and that's okay, right? You've got to just give yourself comfort with boredom. You don't have to make your life full of boredom, but it has to have enough boredom that it's not something that scares your brain. In some ways, this feels related to what you're talking about when you're in a deep work state and you realize you're working, but you need some research and the place to get it is online. And if you can't get it, you know you're currently shut down on whatever it is you're doing. But nevertheless, you still want people to put at least five minutes between that realization and then going online. Right. Yeah. And even a small delay, even if you just have the habit of, well, let me just take three more minutes of doing this hard thing before I go find that piece of information online. Even that is valuable because it's put some separation between the impulse and acting on the impulse. That makes sense. I would say, you know, if an economist were to write the same book, it would be one sentence. Your whole life is about opportunity cost. What do you want to have done at the end of it? So this brought me to another book, which I mentioned in an email to you, which was uh, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, and it's called Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. It really struck me because she talks a lot about the proclivities of different personality types, introverts versus extroverts. Introverts like quiet and low stimulation environments, in part because of the way their nervous system is run. And I'm wondering now, for the longest time, introverts have had to struggle in American society because the person who is a noisy, hail fellow well met kind of person was rising to the top of corporations. And that's still the kind of person that Harvard Business School is promoting, as she described in her book. But your book seems to suggest that there is a societal shift that needs to take place to values deep work that introverts will kind of have a leg up over extroverts on. I think that's absolutely true. I think the rise of the knowledge work economy is creating the age of the introvert. This is the age where the introvert's going to do better because in the industrial economy, most of the capital investment, the things that were producing the value was machinery. And you know that's what you put your money into. You bought the sort of big pieces of machinery. You maybe required a lot of people to help operate the machinery, but the machinery sort of what was producing the value. You had blue collar workers who helped run the machinery. And then this much smaller cast of sort of white collar workers often were in these more extroverted type positions because, well, I, I'm helping to sell the stuff the machinery produces or, or make the connections. But in knowledge work, the main engine of value production is now human brain. So instead of having an assembly line, you have a thousand different people whose brain is producing power. And this requires quiet and this requires concentration. And it's something that wilts under lots of distraction and interaction. Non-blue collar work increasingly is basically human brains that produce value, that take the role that the big factory machinery used to do. And that requires a completely different set of traits that introverts are often much more comfortable with. As a lifelong introvert, I read that and I get really excited. We're talking about a culture of lifelong learning. And we don't seem really well suited to it. I'm really kind of worried about it and I don't know what to do about it. 
we're going in the wrong direction right now in, like, say, U.S. educational circles. We, we have, for example, this whole sort of ed tech community that keeps selling these ideas of like, well, we got to approach students where they are and integrate these consumer facing technologies into the classroom. And if students are distracted on their phones, then you should have polling apps on their phones. So they can use the phone in class in a productive way. Whereas another country like China is going to figure out pretty soon is like, well, we just don't allow our kids to have smartphones. And you know what? <laughs> They're going to get to the age of 18 and be so much more comfortable concentrating that they will master the hard programming languages and mathematics of statistical machine learning much easier. And we're going to blow the American kids who can't go more than six minutes without glancing at a phone and are uncomfortable with concentration will blow them out of the water. I don't think there's any doubt that deep work in developing the the attention, concentration muscles, the focus, you know, learning all the exercises that you recommend, things like how to get less email by being smart about the process that email is designed to support. Those are all great. One of the things when I was reading the part about the email, which is near the end, you say, say no, you know, use the power of no. But one of the things that popped into my brain was like, boy, wouldn't you like to be saying to people, if you send me one more kitty cat meme or puppy video or chain email that I don't need to be on, because even if you don't respond, it's still wasting time to see it was a puppy video. How do you get people not to do that? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you can cultivate expectations about yourself. If you're someone who just never responds to those emails or you don't respond to the text of the pictures or whatever, people after a while just know, like, hey, Art is not someone who is on email a lot. He doesn't read these things, he never responds to these things, and, and you you fall out of those chains. I mean, you can, you can essentially, to some degree, by cultivating people's expectations, they adapt. Some people get annoyed. Some people you have to explain it to. But for the most part, they will adapt. And it's better to get people to adapt to what you think is best for you than it is for you to adapt to what other people think is best for them, which is what happens when you say, well, I just need to be accessible, answer everything, always be around. That's basically you're just adapting to make everyone else's life as easy as possible, but at the expense of your own productivity. So I say figure out how you want to go through this world from a communication perspective. Do it. Get used to apologizing. <laughs> Recognize that there's then certain jobs you can never hold because you would get fired immediately. <laughs> and uh, I'd say that's okay. And plan your career accordingly and then just stick with it, right? I mean, like people know I am terrible at email. I'll go days without checking it. I just won't answer. And I'm just kind of people know that, right? I mean, it's just, it's annoying, but they kind of go on with their lives and it makes my ability to produce things deeply much better. I think more people could be doing that than they realize. Well, that brings me to the final thought that I had, which was accessibility. And again, this brings me back to that first job where my boss was demanding me to get on IM. What I found myself answering time and again, there were two components to my job. The first part was very straightforward. It was editing and formatting and extremely routine. And people would reach out and ask me editing and formatting questions about reports they were submitting for my okay. And the answer was, look at the last report from the source you submitted. Do everything the same way. They knew the answer, but I firmly believe if people will ask questions, they already know the answer to, because it's easier to ask you if they can get an instant response than think about it for literally one second. And so I think curtailing your availability curtails a lot of that kind of interaction, which helps no one's productivity. I don't think them asking the question helps their mental muscles. It certainly interferes with yours. I'm kind of all on board with be less available rather than more available. Personal experience has borne that out 110%.
there's two relevant points there. The first is, uh, in general, people don't need accessibility, they need clarity. Mm-hmm. So if you're clear about when you can be reached and how you can be reached and people understand it, then they're okay that you're not always accessible. Adding a little bit of friction <laughs> into what's required to communicate with someone drastically reduces the amount of communication they get. Yes. Which I think is both a interesting productivity hack, but also a really interesting observation about how much of this culture of constant communication is fundamental for our organizations to thrive and how much of it is a weird emergent side effect that happens when you put a zero friction communication system in place. A somewhat drastic example is I was just talking with a media consultant bombarded with emails all the time. It seemed like her job was always about it. Her clients demanded it. And finally she had enough and she said, that's it. I don't do it anymore. I'm I'm basically not accessible in email, but if the client said, okay, well, we can't do that because we need you all the time. We can't wait a day. She said, that's fine. I'm also going to give you a phone number. And if there's something that can't wait till the next day, you just call me right on this number and I will answer it, right? So you have accessibility. She said in four years, she's gotten zero phone calls. It all disappeared. And actually, it turned out that almost everything was just fine waiting a day or two. Nothing was as urgent as it seemed. So even just a little bit of friction in the system drastically reduces it. One of the other takeaways that I have at the end of the book is how much your level of productivity doubled and then doubled again, essentially, as you really kind of buckled down and employed in your life all of these deep work techniques to be ruthless with your time. People are going to be a little offended at first, but they'll get used to it. And what they're not really going to miss when it's gone, you're going to find an amazing level of productivity when you have that block of time back under your control. That's the point I always like to emphasize is that committing to deep work is something that's at the core of your work experience is not about being a little bit more productive has nothing to do with the morality of the distractions, you know, that this is no good and this is better to to be focused. It's about massive increases in productivity. And I really like to emphasize that oftentimes when people embrace deep work, they train their ability to do it. They make it the center of their life. They start annoying people or what have you to the outside world. It looks like they have a superpower because people that embrace this start producing multiples more work and multiple higher levels of quality than people who don't. So it's not, I think you're absolutely right, and I'm glad you brought it up. The deep life is not about slight edges in productivity. It's about becoming a superstar. Cal, I know we're getting towards that time of day. In fact, we're just about 20 minutes from when you're going to say shut down complete. And I'm not going to explain that to listeners. <laughs> Let them read the book. But it's the final step of your work ritual of shutting down and making sure that you've set your work aside. You've done what you need to do. You've tidied things in a bow. And then... That's the other beauty is you're not thinking about it all the rest of the time. You're going home and you're living your life and that's better too. It's not just good for work. It's good for your personal life. Was there anything else that you think is important and we didn't get to? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would say my, my kind of like high level summary of all of this is concentration is not only really valuable, but it actually is a skill that really has to be trained. So I want to leave that final thought in everyone's mind, which is this idea that you actually have to practice concentrating to get better at it. So it's good news, bad news, but it's like any other hard skill. It's something that you have to work at before it starts to get you the great returns. Well, practice makes perfect. Or as they say in German, practice makes the master. (laughs) And it's all about mastering high-level skills. Professor Newport, thank you very much for your time. I know from having read the book intensively that you are very jealous of your time. So thank you very much for sharing it with us. Great. Well, thanks, Art. I enjoyed it. 
Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. For more, check out thetechnoskeptic.com, where we post a new article or podcast every Wednesday. If you're interested in being part of the Technoskeptic team, send an email to info at thetechnoskeptic.com. Thank you.